Welcome to Green Minds, a podcast of the Southeast Sustainability Directors Network. I'm Catherine Mercia Baggett, and I'm co-hosting with Laurel Creech. This month, we get an introduction to the Justice 40 Initiative, a bold, ambitious goal to target federal investment in disadvantaged communities. To help us understand what this means for local governments, we will hear from Michael Dexter, the director of the Southeast Sustainable Recovery Center at SSDN. Chris Barber, a graduate student at the University of Virginia's Urban and Environmental Planning Master's Program, is putting his analytical skills to work for SSDN as well. He will present the tool he developed for SSDN community members to evaluate their eligibility for upcoming grants. Hello, Michael and Chris. Welcome to Green Minds. Uh, let's get started with an introduction. Michael, who are you? What is your background? And what do you do with SSDN? Sure, thank you. Uh, my name is Michael Dexter. I've been with the SSDN since August of 2021. Uh, and over the last uh, near year and a half, I uh, became the director of the Southeast Sustainable Recovery Center, which is basically a program of SSDN to connect our member governments uh, both local and tribal governments with federal resources. So in that role, I'm really trying to help connect our local governments with appropriate uh, information on what grants are available, how to access those grants, as well as build the capacity for long-term sustainability uh, to really help our local governments access a lot of these resources to advance their sustainability and equity goals. Prior to SSDN, I was actually with a state special district uh, in Florida, working as a finance and grants manager around environmental uh, restoration, uh, water management, uh, but then also was uh, previously to that uh, with the EPA uh, in several different roles, including on climate change adaptation, grants management, and disaster preparedness. I truly appreciate the service that you bring to SSDN because Federal funding is a foreign world to me, so thank you. My pleasure. We often hear about lofty goals and initiatives at the federal level, but they don't always materialize. How is Justice 40 different? Why should local governments pay attention to its implementation? First, I'll just start out with a little brief uh, overview of what the Justice 40 initiative is, and then I'll go a little bit into the actual implementation of it. First and foremost, the Justice 40 initiative actually came out of an early executive order 14008 called Tackling the Climate Crisis at Home and Abroad. Namely, it says that there is a goal of the federal government uh, for 40% of federal investment benefits to go towards disadvantaged communities. Now, it's important to know that in the early iteration of this, there were several categories that were sort of identified as being representative of disadvantaged communities. Uh, some of those our local governments might be familiar with. They could be areas of economic distress or areas of persistent poverty, but many also have a direct relation to environmental justice and sustainability, namely looking at transportation and energy cost burden, limited water and sanitation services, or even disproportionate climate risk. So as we're talking about the Justice 40 initiative, I do also wanna just recognize the fact that uh, while it is an administration initiative, from the Biden-Harris administration. It is something that a lot of NGOs and community-based organizations have been calling for and has largely kind of come out of a lot of the efforts around EPA's National Environmental Justice Advisory Council and a lot of concerted effort from stakeholders on the ground 
recognizing that there is an underinvestment and oftentimes even a disinvestment in a lot of underserved communities, of which we have countless of them in the Southeast. So when we're talking about this initiative, it's really important to recognize that it's still in the early iteration of implementation. And so when you're dealing with something as broad as trying to ensure that 40% of federal investment goes towards disadvantaged communities, you're talking about a very lofty endeavor for this administration. And so they're really trying to put a concerted effort into ensuring that it gets implemented in the best uh, avenue possible. So while it's still in the early implementation process, we do know that there is a lot of focus on some early pilot programs, as well as even now looking more towards the new authorities that are coming out of the bipartisan infrastructure law and the recently passed Inflation Reduction Act. So I guess one thing I really want to talk about is that with all manner of federal assistance, we're also talking not only on these 20 grants, but we're talking about a broad array of recurring and new grant authorities. And we can actually see uh, that the administration is keen to also ensure that the implementation of this initiative gets broadened to not only the early pilot programs, but more broadly spread across all of the federal government. Social equity is definitely a big concern for sustainability practitioners, and SSDN seems always there to help us. So how is SSDN helping communities prepare for Justice 40? First, I have to point out SSDN has long had workgroup discussions on equity, and we have a lot of great members out there who have been at the forefront in the Southeast on raising concerns about equity and environmental justice. So SSDN has long uh, been active in this role. With the SSRC, I'll say a couple of areas where we've been involved is very early on, we partnered with Columbia University with a lot of their master's students and professors to create a capstone report identifying a lot of the elements of Justice 40 and how our local governments could prepare. That was really key to early on get a lot of that information and help start thinking about how the SSRC and SSDN could really help support our local governments in understanding the Justice 40 initiative, how it might impact them, and how to ensure that they incorporate Justice 40 principles and that community outreach and engagement in their efforts with their broader community. In addition to that report, I will say that I also do oftentimes mention this within biweekly emails and our presentations. And we also work with our partner organizations such as USDN to really engage with federal agencies and inform the implementation of this uh, initiative. Because as I mentioned previously, this is something that is still being developed at the moment. And we're still looking forward to seeing how this will actually be implemented over not only the four years, but hopefully even longer, not only this administration, but potential future administrations. In addition to working with USDN and our partner organizations, we've also been working really closely with Chris Barber, our intern over the summer, and now a part-time staff member on creating geospatial resources around Justice 40. And I think this is really key because oftentimes when we're dealing with these new initiatives and, and other opportunities, we really want to get a visual look on uh, what is happening and how does it impact not only our own community, but more broadly across the Southeast. And with that, I'll actually turn it over to Chris, talk a little bit about 
the geospatial work that he's done and what he's created. Thank you, Michael, and thanks, Catherine, for hosting us today. Briefly introduce my, myself first before talking about uh, the work I've been doing. My name is Chris Barber. I am a second year graduate student at the University of Virginia in the Urban and Environmental Planning Department. I grew up in Tennessee in a very rural area between Nashville and Memphis. I moved to Knoxville in 2008 for undergraduate work. And then I spent about the next seven years after graduating in 2013 in political organizing, mostly for small dem democratic campaigns, ranging from city council, county commission, even up to mayoral. As you might imagine, it was uh, not an easy task being a Democrat in Tennessee, so I grew a bit disenchanted with that and uh, decided to go to grad school. My time in organizing at the city level really led me to believe that urban planning is a great avenue to affect positive change in people's lived experience and the power of the built environment to inform equity. So, I mean, that that leads me nicely into this internship that I was fortunate to obtain through SSDN. And I've been working with Michael and uh, the other team members since June of this year. I focused on consolidating the uh, Council on Environmental Quality data set that defines disadvantaged communities, just first with the SSDN member governments, and then I expanded nationally. Additionally, I also developed a web application, you know, which synthesizes not only the original CEQ data set, but also brings in about eight other pertinent data sets to the Justice 40 initiative, which I'll talk about in more detail in a moment. I also have been developing um, snapshot maps for member governments. And the purpose of these snapshot maps is to give a clear and concise visualization of, I think, six data sets for any given community that SSDN has. Um, and the hope is that either sustainability directors or planners in these member governments can look at these snapshots and have a have a clear understanding of how different agencies are defining disadvantaged or perceiving their communities from a disaggregated data perspective. It yeah. sounds complicated enough. Uh, I understand that you faced several challenges. So what are your findings on Justice 40 so far? It has certainly been a really fascinating endeavor to really take a, a deep dive into all of these data sets. Like I said, the, the first step, what I did was exploring the CEQ data set and all the variables which comprise it. It's sort of been like the benchmark for the Justice 40 initiative so far, but other agencies have um, sort, of, sort of periodically released their own data sets. Interestingly, I think most people are probably familiar with a lot of the data contained in the CEQ data set because it's largely census data complemented with some of the other data sets that, that I included, but also some external data as well. There are some peculiarities with it. As Michael mentioned, there are some you know, possible uh, inconsistencies or concerns about data accuracy in some of them, but also it's really contingent on sustainability directors to, to take these maps, to take these data sets and use them in such a way that they complement their on the ground knowledge. But when I say like concerns about data accuracy or built in assumptions, what I mean is that data has limitations, right? It can only tell the viewer so much. We know that, for instance, the 2020 decennial was really affected by the pandemic. So there are concerns about, you know, its viability as a, as a, a good data source. 
And from my personal experience, there is a metric in the CEQ data set which measures legacy pollution among communities. You know, communities that are either close to Superfund sites, brownfield sites, et cetera, or you know, historic pollution of any kind. You may or may not know that in 2008, for instance, there was a massive coal ash spill in Kingston, Tennessee, uh, where over a million gallons of coal ash were spilled into the community of Kingston. And it's been a really dire situation in the years following, and it's still not totally resolved. But the point being is that the tracks that are there do not reflect scores of poor legacy pollution. That's all that's all to say that you know the on the ground knowledge is essential to really contextualizing this data. From a from a larger perspective, I might be going too in the weeds too quickly here. <laughs> so I'm sorry if I'm if I'm doing that. You should know that all of these data sets examine communities at the census tract level. Tracts are not the smallest level of geography that you know you can analyze by. That I think that's the block group actually. And tracts are great, you know, because they provide a, a common way for us to understand how communities are organized throughout the United States, but there are also some concerns about that. For instance, any given tract might, you know, include a very affluent community, but also historically redlined one as well. And because the presence of this affluent neighborhood, which might be adjacent to a redlined community, the, the CEQ or any other agency may not view that tract as disadvantaged. And from a grants perspective, you know, in receiving federal funding, that, that would really put this historically redline community in a really bad position. So again, important to contextualize the data. We noticed exactly the scenario we're talking about. We didn't have redlining in Sandy Springs, but we have a area of vulnerable population that is sitting in a more affluent mm. neighborhood. And then you look at the census data and it just looks like your average census tract. Yeah, absolutely. Going forward, I, I think the federal government recognizes that accessing grants and federal funding has been a challenge for a lot of communities historically. Part of the executive order that um, the Biden-Harris administration issued earlier this year mandated that all the federal agencies release equity action plans. And all of those plans address barriers to equity within them and how they can better serve um, historically marginalized communities. One of those steps, one of those action items across all the agencies is that they plan to make the grant application more accessible by being more proactive with reaching applicants who are members of underserved communities. Also, interestingly, I don't think I touched on this yet, there is no established definition of what disadvantaged is yet. CEQ has one based on the initial interim guidance that was that was issued by the Biden administration early on. You know, the DOE and the DOT and a litany of other agencies have their own definitions of disadvantaged. So part of the purpose of my work has been to overlay all those data sets that the agencies have developed to give sustainability directors the ability to compare them, see how there might be similarities or overlap or, you know, disparities between them. Yes, I remember my first readings on Justice 40 realizing that there is no definition. That's uh, that's a tricky ball that we receive often from elected officials, it feels like. I was new to working with GIS software, I mean, prior to last year. So this has been a learning experience for me, too. But because of the way the Biden administration is defining disadvantaged communities in, in a geographic sense, it's sort of like necessitated 
the need to look at it geospatially and understand how one one agency may define it this way, but you know another may not. So with the, the findings uh, that you have compiled, where should local governments go? What are our next steps to prepare for the implementation of Justice 40? I think that above all, I mean, it's, it's important to be cognizant of all the different maps and all the data sets that are available and compare them to one another and understand which tracks are considered to be disadvantaged by different agencies speak to Michael primarily about what grants might be available from specific agencies in order to aid those those communities. Also, just be aware of on-the-ground circumstances and be able to complement these data sets, you know, with that knowledge in, in your grant applications. It's important for them to engage with other community groups and to inform their projects and other other opportunities. And I and I think that, you know, for example, Several member governments have created their own environmental justice or equity assessments, like Asheville has with their climate justice initiatives. So that's a great model that could potentially be replicated in in preparation for Justice 40. Don't hesitate to reach out to Michael or I. We definitely will. Michael, do you have anything else you would like to add? The Justice 40 web app is a great start in helping ensure that communities are able to recognize how the federal agencies are actually viewing their census tracts. But as Chris said, there's so much more on the ground data that can be provided to help supplement that information and recognize that, as you mentioned, a lot of these census tracts, it might not capture the actual local experience. And so on that front, it is definitely important to be reaching out to your frontline, your fence line communities and your community-based organizations to be working with them and supporting them in their efforts uh, as well. Because the Justice 40 initiative, while on one sense it does it affects federal funding, it might affect co the competitiveness of federal grant applications, it's also really meant to be there as a way to ensure the benefits of that federal investment are going to communities. With that, it's really important to be working with those community-based organizations and empowering them to potentially pursue some of those resources themselves. We're happy that going on from here that we've been able to bring on Chris as a part-time employee to provide support to our members, uh, as well as build out additional GIS data. We're gonna be posting a blog sometime uh, within October, 2022, with information about the Justice 40 web app, as well as a teaser of what we are gonna do going forward. Uh, one of our key next steps is we really want to start to assess the current administration's level of how closely they've aligned with the Justice 40 in providing resources to a lot of these census tracts. And so we have uh, information available from a few different pilot grant programs where we're going to start mapping out the locations of those grants and those projects to see how they fit within the context of Justice 40 whether those applications all came from certain census tracts or whether what level of success have they found? Has it reached that sort of 40% threshold to get funding to where it's most needed? I will also say that we are happy to announce that we recently brought on the contractor who actually is one of SSDN's former Southeast Sustainable Communities Fund grantees, Ramona Williams from the Mississippi Communities United for Prosperity uh, is actually undertaking a project for us to help the SSRC expand efforts 
to support our member governments promoting and going for a lot of these federal assistance opportunities uh, so they can do it in partnership with the community-based organization uh, and those frontline and fenceline communities that I mentioned. We really want to help support our member communities getting funding, whether it's to the actual local government or it's just to the community-based partners and organizations that would also really need that as well. I would say that also particularly important as we go late 2022 and early 2023, we will actually see several federal assistance programs come out that actually require a partnership between local governments and community-based organizations. And that's where I think Ramona bringing her as a contractor, uh, given her amazing work in Duck Hill and insight and challenges on the actual coordination between state, local, and community-based partners, She's the perfect contractor to help lead this engagement and coordinate with our member governments and community-based organizations to actually pursue these resources and hopefully bring more funding to the Southeast where it's most needed. We definitely look forward to hearing from Ramona and perhaps we could have an episode with her. It sounds like she has a, a really positive past experience with SSDN. Absolutely. Uh, for someone who is looking for the the web app, is that available on SSDN's website? Yeah, so it's publicly available and we have it on USDN slash SSDN's GIS web application or organizational page. So we'll provide the link to that on SSDN's website and anyone can go view it. In addition, the other web applications that we are going to be creating will also be posted on the website and accessible by the public. Excellent. I'm sure that will be a tool vastly used in the upcoming months as the, the funding does get released. Thank you very much for your participation. That was a wonderful conversation. Good luck with the closing of your master's, Chris. <laughs> Thank you. Um, hopefully I won't need it. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Green Lines covering the Justice 40 initiative with Michael Dexter and Chris Barber. Please come back next month for a special edition that will focus on some of the Candida Foundation's grant recipient organization's work.